Let's begin, Chris. Come on in. All right, thank you. Well, good morning again, everyone. Thanks for being here as we... It says lesson 10, but that's really a misnomer. I had lesson, I think it was six that I did in two stages, but I just didn't change it. So this is uh, lesson 10 this morning. And does it begin with the garments of the high priest? Yeah, well, Evan just didn't put that on there. This is lesson number 10. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for remaining in here for the study of the Word. I do ask your prayers for this. Uh, as always, as I begin to get toward the end of one series, I begin to ask the Lord, you know, what's coming up next? I'm not of the ilk to wait to the next day and, and then start something. And so I, I believe that the next series, if there is a little gap in time, I might do a greater than Solomon. We did that years and 20 some odd years ago. I think it'd be a important two or three weeks there. But the next series of any consequence as far as time is concerned I think is going to be uh, Christ as prophet, priest, and king. The three uh, offices, the three ways in which God uses the Lord Jesus in ministry. And I, I think I'm, I'm going to do it that way. I think that's the way the Lord has given me to do it because I, we want to go and go into the Psalms. And we do have Mr. Psalms in here this morning, Phil Widener and want to go into the Psalms <clears throat> to study the Messianic Psalms, to look at the Psalms and see some of the Messianic um, connotations and references that are in the Psalms. Just to, again, to cause us to see that group of scriptures in a totally different light than maybe some of us have seen it before. But before I do that, I think we need a background, a better background in Jesus as prophet, priests, and kings, because all the Psalms are going to speak about him in one of these three ways. And so I think we just need that background. That was the Lord's leading to me, I hope. So do be praying for that, that I'd be given revelation and understanding and time and all that kind of thing that we need to, to put together these kinds of studies. So last week, remember, we talked about the high priest. Israel's high priest, one high priest at a time. All the high priests came from the tribe of Levi and specifically from the family of Aaron. Therefore, sometimes the high priest uh, in Israel is called the Aaronic, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. You might find that occasionally, the Aaronic priesthood. What does that mean? Oh, the Levitical priesthood. It just indicates the family, uh, the, the, the wing, if you would, of the Levitical Levi's family that, through which the high priests come. All the high priests were descendants of, um, what's his name again? Aaron. And they were to be the firstborn son was to be the next high priest. Sometimes the Lord did it this way, sometimes he did it another way. You remember that this was not a rule and a regulation. This was God's preference. It was God's way of saying something about there is coming one day a son, an only begotten son, who himself will be the fulfillment of all that the high priest ever did, ever stood for. You see that? And so that's why the emphasis is on son and his sons and the generations and firstborn. Why? Why does God do that? 
Because Steve, one day God's only begotten son, one and only son, will be the one who will fulfill all the purposes. So therefore you see these emphases in the Bible. People say, what is, why is this? Why, why can't it be this and the other thing? Because God has decreed that this is the way it is. And you remember that the most important person of, in Israel was not the king, but was the high priest. Because all of the nation's ability to walk with God, to be God's people, all of the nation's hope, hope for present and future blessings, all of the nation's history as far as going forward, even their very existence, everything of Israel depended upon the person and character and work of this high priest. Why? Because in this priest was represented the entire nation of God's people. And every time this priest came before the Lord with a sacrifice for the sin of the nation to be put away and forgiven for another year, God saw not only a man and a man making sacrifice, but in this man, God saw the entire nation of his people. So that when this man made sacrifice by the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin, God saw all his people being included in that offering. As a result, when the blood was sprinkled, you remember, on the mercy seat once a year by the high priest on the day of atonement god declared that the nation that was included in this offering that their sin was put away for another year and that god's vengeance against sin god's wrath against sin would not be poured out upon his people for that ensuing year and so this understanding of representative is one of the two most basic understandings and bases for God's work in our life. And so as we look at the high priest, we're looking at representation, that everything in this man and about this man and what he does and how he does it, everything represents someone else in whom we are all to be represented. And it won't only be the issue of representation, but we'll get into this within the next week or two. The second major understanding of our salvation is not only representation, but substitution. Substitution. And so if you want to understand our salvation from the perspective of God, we must understand these two issues, representation, and substitution. Everything about our relationship with God, everything about our relationship with God is gathered up and poured in to these two understandings. The understanding of representation, a representative. Someone represented me. Someone did something on my behalf and in that doing God saw that I was being represented I was doing it, if you would, in that man. And not only representation, but substitution. 
And that as that animal was dying, it was dying in my place. It was the substitute. It took my place. Rather than I pay my, the personal price for my condemnation, that animal was substituted in my place. And so everything about our relationship with God, everything about our salvation, everything about what we are, who we are as a people, is, cons- is, is gathered up and put into these two words, representation and substitution. So if you can remember these as you read your Bible, I think for very many it's going to make a lot more difference. It's going to make more difference to us than we have before. So you remember, the high priest alone was consecrated by the Lord to serve as man's representative before God in the administration of the sacred sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. So the Lord began this instruction of the high priest, remember in Exodus 28.1, by setting Aaron and his sons apart as the Lord's priests. And again, you see the emphasis on sonship. Why? Because God sends his son And as a result of that sacrifice being accepted, now we, the body of Christ, become the sons, if you would, not in a male sense, but in a uh, uh, relational sense. We become what? The sons of God. And so this salvation, this work of the high priest, this representation only applies to sons or sons and daughters. It applies to no one else upon the earth only to those who are in the family of God by God's preordained decree. So now, let's look at the garments of the priest. And you notice this, God sets Aaron and his sons apart. Bring unto me Aaron and his sons. Remember, the four sons of Aaron, they come before the Lord. And before God begins to give instruction and consecrate these men as his high priest, he begins with something most fundamental. He begins with who they are as his men. He begins with their character. Ministry always begins on the basis of character, never begins on the basis of activity. Ministry always succeeds on the basis of character primarily, and in, if that character is of God, and if that person, and if we are administering God's way, within the character of God and the leading of the God's Holy Spirit in us, the ministry will be successful. And so God's interest in these men primarily, or at least initially, is what? That they be men of a particular character. That we, as we are saved, God is primarily concerned about our character. The character that produces the works. Character producing godly works. So after setting Aaron and his sons aside as a priest, the Lord then gave instruction for the garments. Why the garments? Why does the Lord begin with the clothing? Why is clothing so important to God? Biblically, clothes, isn't it interesting how you don't see errors in type until you read it days later. Biblically, clothes were an outward symbol of an inward reality that represented the person's character. Biblically, what God is saying in the garments of the priest is that these outward garments, these, outward, these are outward symbols of what God has constituted on the inside. 
So as the priest would wear these outward garments, these garments that would portray particular aspects of character and of activity, what God is saying is, as you look on the outside, I am really revealing something on the inside. So let's not obsess, obviously, on the outside, but let's make sure that we see that the outside is important to be reflective of the inside. And, 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 and just as we go ahead, I, I hope I can get through at least this today. In today's world, I think there are too many believers who think it doesn't, ma- who think it doesn't matter how we dress. Because the culture, you know, we can do all kinds of things. We have freedom. Even today, with what we wear and how we wear it, what we show and what we don't show, what we accentuate and what we don't accentuate speaks of our character in Christ. It speaks about something of Jesus himself. And so I think in the mornings when we all get dressed or our children get dressed or whatever, we need to look in the mirror and not say, hey, does this fit the fashion of the day? Do I look good? Have I looked in Vogue magazine? You didn't know anything new about Vogue. Vogue magazine and see, hey, am I keeping up with the world's traditions? Or should we look at ourselves and say, is there anything about me that will distort the image of this pure and holy and majestic God? Men, are we wearing clothes that would distort that women are we wearing clothes that would in any way distort that oh peter you're just extreme i I think no no i am not extreme god is extreme in his desire to have a people of his own character god is the extreme one how do i know that because he sent his only son to the cross that this might be so and there's no more extreme activity that has ever existed or will exist can you say amen Amen. you see so don't call me extreme call god extreme i'm a powder puff compared to god and so are we all so what is the background of this well you remember in genesis 3 10 adam was ashamed what happened adam where are you and he's behind the bushes over there and he's clothed himself and eve with what fig leaves And the Lord said, what's going on? What have you done? And what does verse 10 say? I was what? Naked and ashamed. I was naked and ashamed. You see, Adam was ashamed because he was naked. He had lost his original clothing of God's righteousness. You see, although Adam and Eve Eve had been naked before the fall, they didn't have on clothes before the fall. They weren't wearing designer clothes. They were naked. And although they were naked before the fall, God had clothed them with his own righteousness, with his own glory, so that in their flesh... They were imaging the beauty and the majesty of their creator. And so even though they were were naked, what was being accentuated and what was being on view was not their bodies, but they as containers of the glory of God. That's what they were having on display. 
It was, if you would, I don't know whether it was visible or invisible. You know, I don't know about that. But we do know that they were clothed with the very glory of God and yet had no natural clothing on. However, what happened? After the fall, they lost the covering of God's presence. They lost the covering of the righteousness of God. The glory of God that had encircled them or had enclosed them was taken away. And they became aware of their own unrighteousness. And as a result of, for the first time, seeing their flesh without the presence of the glory of God, they realized, ah, I'm naked. And so they ran and put fig leaves on themselves. So you, you remember, nakedness in the Bible is often, the issue is not no clothing, but out of God's will, without His presence. What famous church is called naked? What famous church was called naked? You're naked. What Laodicea. You're a bunch of naked people. Well, does that mean they were tripping around in the buff? No. That means that whatever it was that they were doing, they were exposing the activities of the flesh and of sin rather than living in a way where what they were exposing was the glory of God. Nakedness. So rather than imaging the glory of God, Adam and Eve were imaging the shame of sin. Therefore, what did God do? In verse 21, what does the Lord do? He re clothes them yes with natural clothing but this time that the natural clothing because it is God produced God made if you would remember the slaying of an animal the giving of the blood the shedding of the blood this clothing becomes not only a way of clothing their nakedness and their shame but also of revealing God's forgiving presence so don't just think well God did that to cover their shame and to you know make them warm and all that mm. It was much more of the issue of the presence and the glory of God had been given back to them as a temporary clothing because all of us know that the clothing of this animal is not a permanent clothing. And so all of a sudden, clothing became a symbol, a way of God demonstrating on the outside what he was doing on the inside. He was declaring these two even though they were guilty, he was declaring them as temporarily not guilty because of the shedding of the blood of an innocent. And that not guilty temporary rendering or legal rendering was made permanent on another day when another man said, it is finish on that day with that statement all of the temporary forgiveness and putting away of sin of the old testament for god's people all of it on that day at that moment became a permanent reality for all of god's people Amen. so our forgiveness is a permanent reality in the power and in the blood and the sacrificial death of god's high priest himself not something now temporary based on who I am and what I'm doing and did I do it right and did I ask for forgiveness enough times and have I repented of something. No, it has to do only and fully with the sacrificial death of Jesus which we receive and walk in and continue in and are secured in by faith which is God's gift to us that he maintains and will keep us going until the end. Amen? That's right. 
in the same way the garments of the high priest the garments of the high priest represented the inward presence of God's righteous character imputed you remember what that word imputed means? it's a wonderful word what does it mean put to the credit of imputed placed upon by someone else imputed given to by someone else it is not a natural or an indigenous righteousness of their own none of us have intrinsic indigenous righteousness ain't none of us ever have been nor ever will we be righteous in and because of ourselves we will always be righteous because we have been given the righteousness of another man which is called imputed righteousness that's why we can say i am righteous because i have been given a gift and once the gift is given to me whose is it Whose is it once you give somebody a gift? It's there. So they can say, I am righteous. And we can also say, I am righteous because of Christ. We can use, but we can now say, I am righteous, understanding that it is not intrinsic to me that I wasn't born with this, but it's given to me as, a God, as God's gift received by faith. So in the same way, the high priest represents God's righteous character imputed to him so his sacrifice on behalf of the people could be accepted by God. Now, the garments are listed in, in Exodus 28, 4 to 5. Now, there are a number of places where we can go and look at all of this. We can go to Leviticus, but I just stay in, in, and I'm just staying in Exodus for us. But you do see in Leviticus where the priests begin to put these on and go through the consecration activities. Leviticus is the actual putting into real reality and activity that which is presented in Exodus and then Leviticus is the the story uh, or the activity or the record if you would of all of this Levitical activity the priests the sacrifices and all that go on so it's Genesis Exodus Leviticus is given why Leviticus there because the nation cannot continue into the wilderness without Leviticus they cannot continue without the high priest and all the sacrificial system that's why Leviticus is put right there now we can move along once that's been established so here are the garments. These are the garments which they shall wear. Who? The high priest and the sons of Aaron. The breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. You know, so this is what we have. So first of all, the garments are made of what? Of gold. I forgot gold in here. Well, I'm not doing well with this. The garments were made of gold and were and blue, purple, and scarlet material and fine linen. Now remember we went through all that a while back. Remember that? The high priest wore linen as his undergarment. Now, first of all, do you remember what gold represented? Remember that? What? Kingly deity. It represented God. Blue represented what? The heavenly realm. Purple represented what? Royalty. Scarlet represented what? The blood. And linen represented righteousness. So this is, we went through that a while back. So let's talk about the high priest. Let me make sure I have, oh, I already have that down in another piece of this. Okay. The high priest wore a linen undergarment against his body. This is his first, I don't have that little pointer here. But maybe it's under here somewhere. They, well, can you see the picture up here? You see the linen? 
underwear, linen underwear. Okay. Against his body, the high priest wore linen undergarment, and over this undergarment was worn the robe of the ephod of all blue. Oh, thank you, Chris. And that Chris knows some stuff, huh? There it is. That's the linen. And then on top of the linen undergarment, he wore what? A blue robe. The blue robe is all blue. And look at the bottom of the robe. Along the bottom of the robe is a series of pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate. You know, it's a weave that looks like a pomegranate, not real pomegranate. And all around the hem. And the robe itself is one piece and is hemmed at the various places so it's not, it, it can't be torn, essentially. The ephod, let me see, where am I? Okay, over the robe was worn an ephod. This is the ephod. It's a two-piece. It's connected at the shoulders. It has a front and it has a rear. And on the ephod, on the shoulders, are onyx stones on each side with the names of the 12 tribes, on six on this side, six on that side. Look at this. And you have the breastplate here. It's a square. Actually, it's a folded piece of material in a square. And it has 12 stones there, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. And then around his middle is a girdle or a sash, if you would. And on, it, on his head is the crown or the turban. Okay, that's what he wears. So on the front of the ephod was a breastplate of gold, a blue and a purple, scarlet, and a fine twisted linen. The ephod was, a four, square, was four square with four rows of three stones, each engraved with one of the names of the sons of Levi. Around the ephod was tied a sash or the girdle. Some of you may have girdles in your translation, so I just want you to know it's not the girdle that we would think of. It's a, it's a sash or belt, if you would, around the, uh, the middle of the same material of the ephod. So it's the same material there. On the head of the high priest was a tunic or crown of pure gold shall engrave on it like the engravings of a, of a seal, holy unto the Lord. And on the top of it, you can't see it, but it would have in the Hebrew, holy unto the Lord. You shall fasten it of a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban, and it shall be in the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. So these, this is the, the garment. These are the garments. Against his body is a what? white linen undergarment on top of the white linen undergarment the white linen undergarment goes all the way it doesn't drag on the floor but it goes all the way down to the bottom where his feet are stops at the ankles then on top of the white linen what is he putting on one piece you know pulling it over getting his arms in you some of you ladies wear dresses like that maybe you know how you have to do all that maybe someone has to help you is a blue robe all the hems all the uh, um, the uh, edges of it are hemmed in and around the bottom of it, <clears throat> in circles at the bottom, is a series of, of uh, intertwined pomegranate and a bell. Pomegranate and a bell, the entire circular of the uh, hem. And then on top of the blue robe is put the ephod, okay? It is a two-piece material. It has a front and a back. It is clasped at the shoulders with onyx set in stone on each one. And each of these stones has engraved the six sons of Israel according to their birth, the first six, the second six. And then on the front of the ephod is a pouch, if you would, that is twice as long as it is wide, but then when it's folded, it's four square. And then on the front of that, it's called the breastplate, is fastened 
rows of what? The stones, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. And then around his waist is the sash. Now that's, and then on his head is the turban or the tunic or the crown or the cap. There just various translations for these words. So when you read your Bible, if it's not the exact one I use, it's probably uh, one of the various translations of that. Now, all of these garments are for what purpose? Why does a high priest need this? Well, first of all, does a high priest need this? Does a high priest need to wear all this? Yes, why? Because you see, what God is after in this high priest is representation. What God is after here is a foreshadowing of another high priest who will come and who himself will exhibit in himself and in his work all that this, these garments exhibit in this high priest. So every piece of garment has to do with something of the character and work of Christ. Every piece of garment is significant as far as its foreshadowing ability and God telling us there is another high priest coming and this high priest will be indicative of these kinds of uh, character issues that are spoken of in the linen undergarment, the robe, the ephod, the, uh, the breastplate, and the tunic, the sash and the tunic. So as we look at the garments of the high priest, we're going to see that they speak of the various aspects, as I said, of the character and ministry of our great high priest. So all, all we're going to do today is the linen. Next week we'll get into, I think, the rest of the garments. I think we'll do all that next week. So first of all, let's only talk about the linen this morning because we don't have time to go into the other details. I'm too slow. <clears throat> the high priest wore a linen undergarment against his body, signifying the righteous character and walk of Christ. I put Hebrews 4.15 there. Why? Because what does Hebrews 4.15 have at the end of the verse? He was tempted in all ways. What? By sin, yet what? But he did not what? Sin. Here we have, and this is just a verse, it could be many. What, the high pri what God is showing in this high priest is this. The most essential and basic issue with God is righteousness. This holy, pure righteousness of God. That God in himself is completely, absolutely, always, and comprehensively right in anything he does, in everything he does, in anything or everything that he does not do. He is right in absolute, always. He himself is the only right or righteous being in all creation. And so we begin, or God begins to show us, the necessity of our high priest <clears throat> must be that he is righteous in himself, intrinsically in himself. Not an imputed righteousness that we have to have, but a righteousness which is of God, which means what? Only God who is righteous can become the righteous high priest. Only God can do this. And so one of the persons of God must come to become our high priest. Why? Because only God is righteous and only the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are righteous in themselves. 
they share the very same righteousness. So since God is righteous, only a righteous man, and we'll talk about why a man later on, a righteous man may come into his presence and live to make sacrifice for the sin of the unrighteous. So with the high priest, what do we have? We have a man who is not intrinsically, you know what I mean by intrinsically, of his own nature, who is not intrinsically righteous. Aaron isn't intrinsically righteous. We're going to find that out in a few chapters. He's like the rest of us. And so what happens is God must declare him righteous in order to make a sacrifice for the sin of the people that a righteous God can accept from the hands of a righteous priest. It matters. It matters. And so we'll see that Aaron first goes in to make sacrifice for his own sin and then returns and makes sacrifice for the sin of the people. First, he himself must be declared righteous. It must be imputed to him, declared to him, and then he can make sacrifice for the sin of the nation. This is what happens year after year after year after year until another man comes from heaven to do in himself what all of these sacrifices pointed to and could not do in themselves. Therefore, the linen garment of the high priest signifies the intrinsic righteousness of Christ, a high priest. Now, how is Christ righteous? Well, I'll just put a couple of ways down here. First of all, he is ethically righteous. What do we mean by that? In him there is no sin. There is no sin in him. He was tempted in all ways such as we are, but yet what? Without sin. By the way, Jesus was tempted to sin, not by sin. There's a major difference. Jesus was tempted to sin. Remember, we see that in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. The enemy comes to Jesus after 40 days he's spending in the wilderness and begins to tempt him, what? To sin. To do something of his own, for his own benefit, apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus in every point says, no, I am here for the purposes of God and I only obey what God says to do. So he's tempted to sin. The difference is that he had no sin in him, therefore there was no issue of sin in him that caused him to sin. Somebody, I've heard some people say this and, you know, you just don't know what to do. Did Jesus struggle with lust for Mary Magdalene? Oh, oh, oh. No, 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 no. Heresy. 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 Any person who begins to teach that, they can ask it, but teach it. Walk out. Right, Chris? Leave them. Get away from the devil and his lies. There was no sin in him. Therefore, he was never tempted by sin. He didn't see some money on the ground and said, oh, I wonder who's that. He was never tempted not to declare all of his income to the IRS. He was never tempted to whatever. He was never tempted like this. He was tempted to do sin, but at every point said no. And so he says, 
in John 14, 30. The enemy cometh, but he has nothing in me. There is nothing in me that the enemy can touch that is intrinsic to me, Don, that will cause me to be, tempting, to be tempted to sin. Nothing in me, because I have no sin. There's nothing in me. Yet when the tempter comes to us, what does he do? He tempts us not only to sin, but he tempts us to sin by sin. He tempts us to sin by sin. So why do I spend the time on that? Because it's important for us to see a distinction. Sometimes believers don't get the distinction. We're sloppy with our terminology, and we need to be very precise, or at least as much as we can. So he was ethically righteous. He didn't sin. Some people say Jesus became a sinner on the cross. Leave him. Run away. Get out. If you hear that kind of teaching, Jesus became a sinner on the cross. Get out, shut the door, turn off the TV or whatever it is, and get out of that teaching. Jesus was legally righteous. What does Pilate say? Famously, what does Pilate say? I find what? This man hadn't done anything wrong. All of the accusations of the Jewish leaders we know were trumped up charges. He said he could tear down the temple. Man, what? he wasn't talking about the temple in a physical sense. He says, if you destroy this temple, and I can just say him, see him doing this, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. How can you do that, man? It took us 60 years to build this temple. You see, but he was speaking of the things of heaven and not the things of earth. They created an unrighteousness about him. When he said, before Abraham was, remember John 8, 58. I am using the name of Yahweh. They took up stones to stone him. Why? Blasphemy. But you see, Jesus is the only man who does not blaspheme, and there is none in him. Why? Because he's the truth. When he says, I am the bread, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, when he points to himself and says, everything is about and for me because I am everything, he's not being prideful, he's being truthful. In fact, he's being humble because he points to God the Father in every case. He was legally righteous. Because Jesus filled all the requirements of personal righteousness, he alone was qualified to be our great high priest. He alone. No one else can be our high priest. In the same way that the high priest of Israel had to put on the linen garment to be considered righteous. Remember, he had to put this thing on. It was his activity by what? Faith. It was his activity by faith. Think about it. You're the high priest. And you know that when you go into the Holy of Holies, and you know that if there is something wrong with your character that has not been dealt with, and there's still a bit of unrighteousness hanging on you somewhere, Steve, when you go into that most holy place of the pure presence of the righteousness of God, <laughs> you ain't coming out. Think about when they took this seriously, how awesome and how terrifying this must have been. Do you get it? Suppose their sacrifice wasn't accepted. They did this by what? Yet we forget 
that another man with the same kind of faith generated and empowered by the Holy Spirit went to the cross with the same faith. He had faith in what the Word of God said, that God will not allow His righteous one to suffer what? Corruption or deteriorate in the grave, but will raise him up. Jesus went to the cross knowing by faith from the Scriptures and his own experiences that God would accept this sacrifice. This is a very sobering thing that he does. I think sometimes we don't consider what kind of a decision it was that Jesus submitted himself to to go to the cross, to bear our wrath. A very sobering thing. You see, the high priest had to put on the righteous linen just in the same way we are commanded to put on Christ. Listen to Galatians 3.27. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ, who've been saved, have put on Christ. Now in Christ, God has declared us to be his righteous children. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, for in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We have been put on, we have put on the linen, if you would. How did this happen? By the will of God before the foundation of the world. Listen, what 1 Peter um, uh, 1.3 says, God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you think you have been saved because of some decision you made, you're wrong. You're wrong. We are saved because God in Christ put our sins to death. And He made that manifested to us on a particular day, which we called our day of salvation, by birthing us into His kingdom. And by causing us to be born again, what happened? The Spirit of God moved, removed our heart of stone. Remember in Ezekiel 36. And He replaced it with a heart of flesh. Why? Why did God replace our heart from stone to flesh? So that we would be freed and desirous and able and willing and would receive Christ by faith. You see, God has not changed the heart from stone to flesh and then hopes someone receives Christ. God changes it from stone to flesh because this is the only way that we will receive it. And when He does it, all whose hearts are changed from stone to flesh receive Christ. See, God's work is never fouled up. It's a perfect work. That's how we were saved. This means that when we were saved, we were clothed with the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Himself, Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this morning, remember what Revelation said about the saints being clothed in the, right, the white linen of righteousness. Today, how does God see all of us? We have our sins covered over by the righteousness of Christ. We are dressed, if you would, before God's throne in the white linen of Jesus' righteousness. Next week, we'll talk about the rest of the clothing.